Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Mark. I'm, I'm the pastor here at our Syracuse campus. I'm very excited to welcome you all here this morning. Um, we are continue, continuing in our Advent series that we just started last week, um, carrying up to, to Christmas Eve, um, and the celebration of the birth of Jesus. I hope that you guys will, will come on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we're going to have a lot, more, a lot more music, a shorter message so the kids can sit through it. We're going to have the kids actually come up and sing a song. Um, Christmas Eve, the Christmas Eve service is just always a lot of fun, um, a really enjoyable event. So I hope that you guys will be really invitational to it and that you'll, you'll invite your friends and family. Um, we're going to have extra chairs in here, plenty of seating for everybody. So um, like I said, let's be invitational to that. We're continuing in our Advent series today. So last week, if you were here, you heard our, our first message in the series about hope. And if you were, he- you were here, you heard about how our one true hope can only be found in Jesus. And, and we actually finished last week with Isaiah 9-6, okay? It's a prophecy that found its complete fulfillment in Jesus, and so we're actually going to read this again today. We're going to get into this a little bit and, and, and some others. But this was touched on last week. So, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this passage prophesying about the coming Messiah has a lot of description about about who he is, about who the Messiah is. There's a lot of of titles in here, a lot of names, okay? There's a lot of of hints and clues about who he is. First off, the first thing I want us to notice um, is that the Messiah is a man, okay? A child is born to us. A son is given. So the Messiah is, is human. We know that much. We also understand from reading this that he will be a ruler, okay? The government will rest on his shoulders, it says. But what type of ruler will the Messiah be? That's, that's the question. I'm sure that was the question at the time, was what kind of, what kind of ruler is this Messiah going to be? Is he just another king of Israel? I mean, they've had plenty of kings come along, uh, some good, some bad. So is he going to be just another king? No, no, he's not. He's going to be a different type of ruler, far greater than just an earthly king, okay? So there are four names given here that tell us what type of ruler this Messiah is going to be. First off, wonderful counselor. He will be full of wisdom, giving such great teaching and counsel that it can only be described at as as wonderful. That's the only way to describe it. Jesus, his, his teaching and his preaching astonished those who heard him. That's what it says in the Bible. And even the greatest religious teachers of his time couldn't comprehend where his wisdom came from. They didn't, they didn't get it. So that's how Jesus fulfills that, the wonderful counselor. Mighty God, the Messiah is called Mighty God. So like I said, the Messiah is a man, but right here, obviously he's much, much more as well. He's Mighty God. 
Jesus, the Son of Man, the Word who become flesh, fully God and fully man, the only one who could fulfill that, who could be human and mighty God. The next name given is Everlasting Father, another title designating the obvious deity of the Messiah, because only God is everlasting or eternal. He, he had no beginning, and He has no end. Only God is everlasting. So, Everlasting Father. And then this last name that He's given, the last name for the Messiah is Prince of Peace. And this is actually what we're going to focus on today. If you were here last week, uh, Ross mentioned that. Today, we're going to be talking about peace. And when we think about peace today, what do we think about? We really tend to think of it just as uh, the opposite of conflict or war, right? When we say peace, that's what we think. It's just the opposite of, of war or conflict. But really, it means so much more than we really understand when, when we read that word, peace. See, the Hebrew word here is shalom, okay? And shalom is not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness. I want to kind of share with you the outline of biblical usage for that, for that Hebrew word shalom throughout the Bible. So it means completeness, safety, soundness, welfare, health, prosperity, peace, quiet, tranquility, contentment, peace, friendship. So, so as you can tell, shalom has a, a much greater meaning than just this word that we use, peace. Apparently, that's, that's the closest word we have in the English language, but it, but it just doesn't fully encompass the, the real meaning of shalom. Now, today we're going to talk about three different kinds of shalom, okay? Three different kinds of peace that, that we can have. Okay? The first one is peace with God. See, this is where peace needs to begin. It has to start with God. And the reason for that is that peace with God is the starting point for wholeness in, in every other area of our lives. It starts with peace with God. Now, let's say, ask yourself, do you, do you have peace with God? Now, anyone unfamiliar with the Bible probably doesn't even understand that question. Peace with God, and say, I, I don't even, I, I didn't even know I was in conflict with Him. What do, you, what do you mean? I haven't done anything to offend Him, I'm pretty sure. That's what, you know, somebody who might not understand what, what the gospel says, what the Bible says, somebody who's an unbeliever would say. But the Bible says something very different about our relationship with God, about every human being's relationship with Him. See, the Bible says that in our natural state, we don't have peace with God at all. In fact, the Bible says that we, in our natural state, are enemies of God. The reason for that being that, that we were created initially, and we were created in God's image to reflect His glory. God created Adam and Eve to be stewards over His amazing creation. And they, if you, if you know the story of the fall, they, they rebelled. 
Long story short, they rebelled. They chose their own way instead of God's way. They crossed the only boundary that God had put in place for them. He, he told them they're free to do to anything, eat of any fruit in the garden. They were free to do all these things, and he gave them one boundary for their good. But they thought they knew better. And so their disobedience actually didn't just affect them. Hey, their disobedience, it brought all of creation down to a fallen state with them. And so now each and every human being is now born into sin. We're all born with what the Bible calls a sin nature, which naturally rebels against God. Sin, sin comes naturally and easily to us. <laughs> it really does. Um, any parent here knows that you don't need to teach your children how to lie, right? They figure it out naturally all on their own. Um, in fact, when our, our daughter had her first baby, I say first because we're still trying to convince them to have another one. Um, well, she had decided that she wasn't going to, to teach her, her baby daughter the, the, the word no. She wasn't going to teach her the word no. She had read something about just using redirection instead, right? Um, so when, when she told us about this, uh, my wife and I, Sharice, and I were just, I think we kind of winked and smiled at each other thinking, um, we'll see how that works out. It couldn't have been more than a month or two after she had started speaking her first words that we just so happened to hear her answering her mom with no, all the time. Strange, strange, right? But it, it really does prove itself out that we, we're all born into sin. We are all born into sin. We all have this sin nature that causes us to rebel against God. and um, it, it's, it's, it's evident. See, each of us, we, because of this, we have this rift, okay? We have this rift between us and a holy God who can't dwell in the presence of sin. We don't have peace with God. We're enemies of God. Each of us have chosen our own way instead of God's way, the very definition of sin. We're all rebels in our natural state. But Jesus came in order to bridge that gap, to fill that rift. He came to create peace with God that we couldn't have on our own. The Messiah, Jesus, was going to bring an unending peace, according to Isaiah. And we started in verse 6 here, but let's, let's go on into verse 7 and, and, and see what it says here. It says, His government and its peace will never end. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. See, the Messiah will bring with him an unending peace, a miracle that only God could accomplish. And he brings it about because of his passionate commitment, it says. Really think about that. I mean, God has no obligation to us. He really doesn't. He's under no obligation whatsoever to rescue us from our sinful rebelliousness. We as humans chose to reject God. We turned away from Him. But it says here, God has passion for us. He's great and powerful, but also He's loving and merciful. And so God, 
the Father sent his only son to pay the penalty for our sin and our rebellion. And Isaiah and, and many prophets before and after him were given prophecies concerning this very plan, this salvation plan that God had. The Old Testament prophets, they knew all about our sin and our rebellion being a barrier to our relationship with God. But they also knew the promise that God had made to rescue humanity. And they were actually given details here and there throughout the Old Testament, details that weren't fully realized until Jesus' death and resurrection had had fully, fully accomplished God's redemptive plan. Isaiah, he, he gives some more insight into Jesus' mission in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. See, another piece of the puzzle of God's plan is revealed, revealed here to Isaiah as well. The Old Testament is full of messianic prophecies that were never fully understood until after Jesus came to accomplish his mission. In fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He says, This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. It must have been difficult to comprehend why the Messiah was prophesied to suffer so much. Why did he need to be beaten, whipped, pierced, and crushed for our sins? And why would he choose to? Why would God in the flesh put himself through all of that? Well, here's why. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. See, what the Bible teaches us is we've all racked up a debt of sin too great for us to pay and too much for God to simply ignore. But Jesus... He lived that sinless life that we were called to live, required to live, in fact, in order to live with him in eternity. Jesus, he offered up his perfect life in our place to bridge the gap between us and God for all those who choose to accept his freely offered gift. Freely offered gift. That's, that, and that's really what it is. It's freely offered What it says in the Bible is when we place our faith in Jesus for the redemption of our sins, we are made right with God. Made right with God. We have peace with God now. We're no longer enemies. That's the peace with God that Jesus brought. And when we have peace with God, we can experience peace in all kinds of different areas of our life that we haven't before. Other areas that bring us closer to that concept of shalom, not just peace, but completeness. So here's the second area of peace that we can experience. When we first have peace with God, you can now have peace with yourself. 
without reconciliation with God, it's impossible to have peace with yourself. But when we've received God's forgiveness, it opens us up to reconciliation within ourselves. Because when God forgives you, you'd be foolish not to forgive yourselves. In fact, when we truly believe that we've been forgiven by God, when we really accept that, we've actually agreed to trust what God says instead of trusting our own thinking. See, it's the natural outcome after putting your faith in Jesus that, that you can now forgive yourself. But for some, it takes longer to really trust that. I remember when I first began pursuing God, I, I thought I'd accepted Jesus as, as my Lord and, and Savior, but I kept living under this shadow of shame and guilt for the terrible life that I'd lived. I wasn't experiencing this peace that the Bible talks about. I, I was continuing to live in, in conflict within myself, in, this, in brokenness, and I eventually realized that I was actually elevating my own opinion of myself about, rather than what, what God says about me. My opinion of myself mattered more than what God said about me. That was the mistake I was making. I wasn't truly accepting God's forgiveness if I couldn't forgive myself. I realized as I studied, studied God's word that I wasn't trusting Jesus and the work that he did for me. And as I read things, passages like Romans 8, 1 here, it says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If there's no condemnation from God, who am I or you to condemn yourself? But if we can truly trust what Jesus did was enough, that we are truly forgiven, we can experience that peace within ourselves. Trust what God says, not what guilt says. That was weird. Trust what God says, uh, not, what, not what guilt says, okay? Allow God to transform your mind, to change your thinking from your own ways, your own thoughts, to God's ways, to what God says. Isaiah says this in chapter 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. See, that's where that perfect peace comes from. It comes from fixing our minds on God's word. When our minds are focused on our own thoughts, we don't experience that peace. Our minds are our own worst enemies. Because inner peace comes from fixing your thoughts on what God says instead of what guilt says. You will never experience peace within yourself until you focus on what God says. Because our minds are broken and depraved and fallen. Another verse that speaks to this. Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. 
Once we've accepted Jesus' gift of reconciliation and trust God's word above our own thinking, we can experience peace in a third area. And that third area is peace with others. As Christians, we should be the epitome of peace to people around us, shouldn't we? We've experienced peace with God and hopefully with ourselves. And that peace should flow out from us to affect every relationship that we have. In fact, we're instructed in God's word to be peacemakers. Romans 12, 18, Paul says this. He says, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. See, as Christ's ambassadors, we should reflect who he is. We should reflect who Christ is. And he is the Prince of Peace. That's his name. So are you at peace with others? Ask yourself that. There's no better time to reflect on that than than during the holiday season. (laughs) The season of peace isn't one that we always feel a whole lot of peace, right? We've got family, friends, maybe we don't have a lot of peace with. The Christmas holiday can be one where some of us experience more conflict than peace, to be honest. Um, but as Christians, we're called to do all that we can to live in peace with everyone. Right? That's what it says here. Do all that you can to live at peace. So how do we do that? How do we do that? It's those of us who have conflict, those of us who struggle, who do not have peace with relationships around us. Proverbs 16.7 says, when people's lives please the Lord, even their enemies are at peace with them. Have you ever heard that phrase, kill them with kindness? I, I think whoever came up with that phrase had some difficult relationships, and it, it makes sense, right? Now, although I don't think we should hope our kindness brings death to anyone, I think that's kind of going uh, against what, the, what we should be focused on. Um, there really is this, so a practical concept in that, especially when a difficult person to deal with in your life is used to being, you being oppositional, when they're used to you um, creating conflict back with them. When you decide to be kind and Christ-like in the face of conflict, it tends to disarm the other person. And many times, their reaction to you changes. Conflict happens even in our closest relationships, like marriage, right? A lot of us here are married. It takes a great deal of humility and and focus on Jesus to react peaceably in a marriage at times, doesn't it? There's a really great book on marriage, biblically-based book. It's called Love and Respect. I'm sure a lot of you maybe have read it before. I know some of you have in here. How many many in here have read that before, Love and Respect? If you haven't, I think you should read it. It's a a really good book. Um, The main idea of the book, though, is that wives desire most of all to feel loved by their husbands. They desire love from their husbands, okay? But a husband's greatest desire is to be respected by his wife. 
That's a man's greatest desire from his wife is to be respected. Wife's greatest desire is to feel loved. So what what stirs up a conflict often in marriage is, is when one of these are perceived as being withheld, okay? When a husband feels as though his wife is not respecting him, and so then he stops showing love to his wife. In turn, the wife isn't feeling loved, and so she stops granting her husband respect. And round and round and round it goes. In the book, they call it the crazy cycle, and it's definitely a great name for it. The trick is, though, that there's one way to break the crazy cycle. And the, tr- and, and the secret is it, it only takes one person to do it. One person has to humble themselves and grant love to their wife or respect to their husband despite not being given what they desire in return. Despite not getting what, what they really need and, and, and desire, they extend that. It breaks the cycle one person deciding to be the peacemaker. One person deciding to sacrificially extend themselves. And the same principle can be applied to every difficult relationship that we have. And we can be encouraged by knowing that we have the Holy Spirit residing in us to give us strength because it does take strength to have that kind of humility and patience. But we also have the greatest example of sacrificial love to follow in Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Remember that the peace Jesus offers is far greater than just avoiding conflict with enemies, okay? Shalom means much, much more, much, much more. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness. And it entered the world through Jesus. Because of the work of Jesus, we can all be reconciled to God. We can experience an unexplainable peace with God that, that extends outside of ourselves. This peace can, can overflow to impact every relationship that we have in the world around us. That is the wholeness that God wants us to have. That is the shalom that he wants us to experience. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for, most of all, your love for us. But also today, as, as we talk about the peace that you offer us, a peace that the, the world can't offer, Lord, a peace that the world can't experience without you. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the peace that you brought, bridging that gap between us, to make us whole again. Lord, we know that we are, we're fallen and broken without you. You created us to be in communion with you. Clear back in the beginning, you walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. You, you designed us to have peace with you. 
That's the only way that we're whole, to have you making up that, that brokenness inside of us. But Lord, we've all fallen. We've all chosen our own way instead of your way. But Jesus came to make us right with you again. And Lord, I, I just pray that we would really reflect on that this season, this holiday season, that we would, we would look at the Christmas story as a rescue story, a rescue story that you came to, re, to rescue rebellious people who turned away from you, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Lord, I, I, I just pray that that would be something that we allow to transform the way that we live our lives. For those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, the Lord, we would want that message to be shared with everybody around us. We would want them all to know that they can have peace with you. They no longer need to be lost. They no longer need to be discouraged, feeling worthless, feeling pointless in this world, Lord. You have a purpose for us, and that's to have relationship with you, to glorify you, and to live eternally with you, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've done, for what you continue to do for us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.